0: All right, we're going to uh, go to Acts 16 in a minute. I'd like for you to uh, turn there with me. We'll not stay there the whole time today, but uh, we are going to talk about a very important thing that Paul says, Paul and Silas say, that we read just a few minutes ago. I want <clears throat> to give you trivia buffs, uh, trivia question. This is on who wants to be a millionaire. This is in honor of Regis Philbin, who... Passed away last Friday. Some of you may be pretty good at presidential trivia. The guys in the sound booth can't participate in this because they were here at 8 o'clock. Hey, Will Sperlin, sorry, man. Here it is. Which of these US presidents appeared on the TV series Laugh In? Does anybody remember the TV series Laugh In? Okay, Corey does? I don't remember this. Anyway. Which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the TV series Laugh In? Here are the choices. A. Lyndon Johnson, B. Richard Nixon, C. Jimmy Carter, or D. Gerald Ford? I know the answer, but I wouldn't have known the answer. Uh, So here's the background of that, and and I'll tell you why I'm telling you this in just a second. This was one of the most memorable episodes of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, of which Regis Philbin was the moderator. There was a guy named John Carpenter on the show. And I know not everybody, especially those of you who are a little younger, may not remember the show, or maybe you've heard of it, but you don't really know how it works. The way it works is you got one guy, one man or one woman up there with Regis, and they ask a series of questions, and each one is worth more money. And so it starts out, it seems like, maybe the first one, if you get it right, you got $16,000. And you can choose to go home at that point, if you want. Or you can take a risk and get the next question. By the time that John Carpenter, at this point in the show, he had already answered the $500,000 question right, and had decided to go on. Now, what that meant was, if he got it right, he wins a million dollars. If he gets it wrong, he drops all the way back to thirty-two thousand. Now he could have taken the five hundred thousand and gone home, but he chose to move ahead. So there's a lot on the line. Now, one more thing that's important for this story is that you've got three lifelines that you could use at any point in the program. You know, in the contest, you could uh, you could have them eliminate two of the choices, so they might eliminate two of the wrong choices. They might eliminate A and D, and so you got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. If you don't you know at all, you just guess. Or they can poll the audience, and everybody in the audience will give what they think is the correct answer, and it shows it to you, so you see that you, know, you know, 70% of the audience said B, then you might go with B, whatever. And the third one is you can phone a friend. You determine this beforehand, when it comes to a question you don't know, but your friend you think may know the answer, you've got 30 seconds to talk to him or her on the phone and, uh, and, and get their input. Anyway, so John Carpenter decided to go for $1 million. Nobody had ever gotten past a $500,000 question at that point. Carpenter had used not a single one of his lifelines at this point, which was significantly impressive. So he gets to this point, and he's... Regis asks him the question, and he hesitates, and he says, "I want to phone my parents. I want to phone my parents." So Regis said, "What's your you know what's?" An, he said, "I want to talk to my dad." He said, what, "What's your dad's name?" My dad's name is Tom. So Regis got Tom on the line. He said, "Tom, I'm Regis Philbin, and who wants to be a millionaire? I got your son here. He needs your help to get to the you know this que- to answer this question." So he transfers it over to John Carpenter. And there's this hesitation. The 30 second clock begins ticking. And John Carpenter says this He says, Dad, I don't actually need your help. I just wanted to tell you I'm about to win a million dollars. It's a pretty good scene. You ought to go watch it, you know, it's not very long. But it's pretty impressive, you know, to get to that point, not use a single lifeline, there's building up this tension, you think, is this dad going to know the question, you know, is he going to know the answer and all that? And the answer is, it's Richard Nixon, by the way. He said, correct answer, my final answer, is Richard Nixon, he won a million dollars. So it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool thing. Regis Philbin, of course, uh, passed away nine days ago, and, uh, and that was one of the most memorable scenes. Now here's, you're thinking, right, okay. This is supposed to be a sermon on faith. Here's, here's, where, here's where I want to go with this. I don't want to trivialize what I'm about to do or, or say, but I do want to segue from that into this. At that particular moment with John Carpenter, that question had a lot on the line. He could have taken the 500000 He's He's going to go from five hundred to 32000 if he misses, so $468,000 on the line there, potentially a million Lot riding on that question. I wonder how he felt in that moment. You know, obviously he was very confident in his answer. That thing, though, that moment, that question, though there was a lot of money on the line, I think probably even now, I don't know how many years ago that was, but I'm, I'm guessing even now, that question has ceased being as important for that man as it was then. Here's one thing I do know. There are some very important questions and then there's some that don't ultimately matter. The most important question is not which of these U.S. presidents appeared on this particular TV series, but the question that this jailer asked Paul and Silas. Ultimately, you and I are going to stand before God in judgment. You know, we're, we're, going to, we're going to stand there. Every one of us will. Every one of us. We will stand there before God in judgment, and how we answer this question will be what matters that's what will matter. What do I need to do to be saved? And Paul and Silas's answer was very simple. Kyle read it for us a minute ago. It was, it was very simple. Believe, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What in the world does that mean? It sounds very simple. And, and in a way, it is simple. I, I don't want to take away from the simplicity of the gospel. I believe it's very simple. But at the same time, it's It's profound, and there are a lot of implications of this. It's it's a life-changing thing. This is not, as I'm going to show you in a second, this is not simply saying, I believe in certain historical facts. It is so much deeper than that. So let's, let's walk through this for a little bit this morning, talking about faith. Here's the first idea. Faith is foundational. You probably don't need me to tell you this, but I want to give you just a couple of verses here. In case anybody needs to know this, in case somebody's watching online, you want to know what's the most important thing. This is the most important thing. This is foundational. We're going to talk, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about baptism, confession, repentance over the next three weeks. We're not going to do that much today. In a very real way, what we talk about today is the foundation for everything that follows. Repentance, confession, baptism, those matter. But they don't mean anything apart from this. This is foundational. John three fifteen and 16. You're familiar with verse 16, certainly, but verse 15 says this. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Two verses below. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. About 20 verses down below. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 47, I say to you truly, whoever believes has eternal life. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, You'll die in your sins. I mean, go on and on. One more. John 20, 31. John gets to the end of the gospel that he's writing, and he says, here's why I wrote this. I wrote this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's all over, especially John's gospel, but it's all over the New Testament. This this foundational thing. Do you believe And so I wanted you to know, I want want everybody to know this. When we talk about what does it mean to be a Christian, at the foundation of who we are is a very basic and simple faith. I want to explore that a little bit, but I wanted to establish that first. Let's do a little part here that's what it's not, or what it's not only. It's not just mental ascent. It's not just mental assent. And we'll talk about what it is in a minute, so, but, but stay with me for a second. It's not just saying, I believe that Jesus is God's Son, isolated from, from what that means on a deeper level. It's not just agreeing with certain historical facts, okay? Let me give you one example of this, John 12, 42 and 43. John talks about faith more than any of the other gospel writers, and near the end of John 12, uh, he tells this story about some of the religious leaders of his day, of Jesus' day. Many even of the authorities believed in him. All right, So listen to this. He's talk about religious leaders. Many of the religious authorities believed in him, in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you hear that? They believed in him. But their faith was not a saving faith because their faith had not changed them. That leads us to this conclusion. It's not enough simply to believe in Him apart from the implications of that faith, apart from letting the Bible define what that faith looks like, right? So they believed in Christ, but they didn't believe in Christ. We've got to kind of think about this word believe and what it means in the context of the way Jesus uses it. So they believed in it, and by that, I think probably what it means is they intellectually understood this man who's standing before them was the Son of God. In some sense, they recognized that. He was a miracle worker. He was an amazing teacher. They believed that these miracles came from God. They believed that intellectually, but they were unwilling to allow it to change them they were unwilling to allow it to cause them to identify publicly with him. So there are implications of faith that go beyond just a mere mental assent. It's an important thing to recognize. All right, let's talk about what it includes. Here are three things. Number one, you look at the word believe, look at the verb "the verb believe and the idea of faith in the New Testament, in the Bible, and what you'll see is that it includes what we just talked about. It includes believing in the identity of Jesus. Uh, one passage here, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Let me read it. Listen closely to the way Paul defines it. He says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. So do you hear this? If you confess with your mouth, or there, so there are two concepts here. confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Those two concepts are very closely related. Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead. and I believe what Paul means by that is this is a comp, this is a, a simplistic summation of what it means to believe in Jesus. So you believe intellectually that God raised him from the dead. and So w- what that means for us is that we believe the implications that, that lead to that. We, we believe that He is the Son of God. And Jesus would say that in other places, one of which I already read, John eight 24. I, I, I've already told you that if you don't believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. If, if you don't believe that I am, that He's not really necessary, If you don't believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And what he's doing in John 8, 24, is he's saying, if you don't believe that I'm God, because that that connected him with Exodus 3, when God said to Moses, tell them that I am that I am sent you. Remember that story? God identifying as a self-existing one, the, the great I am. And so when Jesus says, if you don't believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. What he's saying is, if you don't believe that I am God, And so you follow that through the life of Jesus. He was crucified on Friday. He was bodily resurrected on Sunday. If you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you see, what Paul is saying there is faith includes an agreement with certain historical facts. There are people in church buildings this morning who will self-identify as Christians, but who, don't, who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That makes, it, it, it boggles my mind. Not, not as much that folks don't believe in the empty tomb. I understand that not everybody's going to agree with that fact. But how one would call himself or herself a Christian in view of that denial. I think there's a, there's a disconnect there because... What it means to be a Christian is to believe in the empty tomb. So you believe that he died and was resurrected bodily on Sunday, and you believe that Jesus is Lord. And so you believe. Here's, here's the thing. You got two pivotal events associated with what Paul is saying. You got resurrection, which includes the weekend events, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There's there's that resurrection, that is then followed a few weeks later by the ascension where Jesus is exalted and declared to be Lord. So this whole this whole event, if you will, all together, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension and exaltation to the right hand of God, declaring himself with power to be the Son of God. So that is what Paul's talking about. It's an agreement intellectually. It doesn't mean we have... We we don't struggle with doubt sometimes. It doesn't mean that we've got everything figured out, but it means we unite around certain historical events centering around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and His exaltation at the ascension to the right hand of God to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, right? So there's this intellectual part of it. We believe in the identity of Jesus. He is Lord, right? He's Lord. Here's the second thing. We trust a synonym of belief in the New Testament is trust. Trust is different from, well, I don't want to say it's different from faith. It's, um, it's different from just intellectual agreement. Uh, you can agree with certain historical facts without trusting in the implications of those facts. And so when the Bible talks about belief, it's saying more than just what we've, what we've said so far in, in, in believing that certain things are true, but rather we trust in the implications of those facts. And so if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on Friday, we resurrected on Sunday, and He ascended uh, six weeks later, and He was exalted to the right hand of God, He was declared with power to be the Son of God, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. If we believe that, then we trust in His sovereignty. A couple of implications of that trust. One is we trust that it is He who can save us and not we ourselves. And so we trust not in our works, we trust not in our abilities, we trust not in our getting it all right, but rather we trust in the fact that He got it all right, and He did it all right, and we are saved because of Him. So there's that trust. What is the focus of our trust? You get into the nitty-gritty of how we live the Christian life here. Because if we trust in our own works... We will always live lives of hopelessness because we know our works are inadequate to say. We know more than anybody except for God, but we know so very well how far short we fall, right? And so we trust in Him to do what we cannot do, and we also trust in Him to do what He said He's going to do. If you're having, by the way, a hard time forgiving yourself for something you've done, I want to urge you to consider asking God to help you to trust Him because that's what it comes down to. In that moment, and we've all been there, I think, in that moment when you're not forgiving yourself, what you're saying is, I don't trust you to do what you said you would do, God. Because what He said was, when you bring your sin to His feet and you lay it down, He will take it away. And when you and I engage in this self-hatred, this lack of forgiveness in our hearts, then we don't truly trust in Him to do what He said He's gonna do. There's also this trust that looks to the future. In a sense, faith looks both backward and forward. It looks backward to the death, burial, resurrection, the exaltation at the ascension to the right hand of God, we acknowledge that and so in a, in a sense that's a backward glance but faith is also a trust in what god is doing in the future so it looks both ways faith toward 2000 years ago faith toward the coming day when what see see all this connects the resurrection shows us paul calls it jesus is the first fruits of god he's resurrected from the grave which is the first fruits, meaning God's going to do it again. And so we trust that there's coming a day when God's going to do with us what he did with Christ. And so we look ahead. We trust in the sovereignty of God, which means when the world is falling apart, when there are pandemics, there's unrest, there's division all over the place, there's anger, all this stuff going on. When we're in the middle of that chaos, we trust in the sovereignty of God. We've got to. We got something solid to stand on. And that is God is working and he is sovereign and he's in control. That's what we believe. So it's not just saying, hey, I believe in what he did, but it's I believe in what he's doing. And I believe in what he's going to do. There's this faith is is something more than just saying I agree with something that's happened, you know? I mean, it is that. That's an important part of it. I I don't want to downplay that. Because what God is doing and what He's going to do, that's all based on what He's already done. It all fits together. See, So we trust in the sovereignty of God. Here's the last thing. We submit to His authority. So we believe what He's done. We trust in what He's doing and what He's going to do. And that causes us to live different kinds of lives. We submit. Let me give you one passage here. One section. These verses, I'm going to read you two or three verses from John 3. Uh, these are verses I read a minute ago, but I want to key in on uh, one, one word here. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Two verses below. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And then verse 36. Listen closely to this one. last verse I want to read in this, in this idea. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. You see those, you see how that parallels? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. See the important part of that is Jesus means for us to see that as parallel. Whoever believes, whoever does not, You you would expect, if you're reading that, you would expect it to say, whoever believes will be saved, whoever does not believe, right? But it's whoever believes, whoever does not obey. That's curious, isn't it? It's not really, not when we look at it in the context of the Bible, because biblical faith always changes people. Remember the ones who believed in him, but they did not confess him because they were afraid? That's not biblical faith, it's different, that's something different. That's a kind of faith, but it's not biblical faith, not saving faith. So what Jesus is teaching us in John three thirty six is that belief changes who you are. So, so you look at this, look at this, what belief includes here. You believe in the identity of Jesus. You believe the evidence points to his being the Son of God, and he was resurrected, exalted, That leads you to trust in the sovereignty of God. He's working. I know He is. Sometimes I wonder exactly how He's doing it, but I trust that He is. And you trust in what He's going to do. He's going to keep His promises. What does that do for us, practically speaking? We submit to His authority, even when we don't understand. We say to Him, I don't know what you're doing always lord and i don't know why you want me to do this i don't know why you want i don't know why you want us to serve people why do you want us to be kind when when everybody else is being angry i, I don't know why you want us to do that but we submit to him if we believe that tomb is empty and we believe our tomb is going to be empty then we obey him right now we obey him right now we submit to his sovereignty we submit to His authority. It changes who we are daily. That's the thing. It's not just a once a week once a week thing where we confess Him on Sunday, but rather this thing this thing is is a, is a life altering thing. You know, it's, it's a life altering deal. You don't get away from it. You don't get away from it. All right, one more thing, and we'll be done. It's this idea of there's an implication here. Now, I want to do something a little bit technical for a second. So I want you to show you something pretty, pretty neat about the language that, that's used, especially in the Gospel of John, that implies a union with Christ. There's, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, more specifically, it was written in a in, in what's called Koine Greek, a common Greek. It was the Greek that people spoke in the marketplace. Uh, it's not some sort of special Holy Spirit language. It was just the language of the people. You know, Alexander Great, uh, Alexander the Great, had spread Greek culture all over the world. And Rome then uh, took it, the, you know, took it a step further. And Greek had become the language of the world. So, Koine Greek, a so language of the New Testament. And uh, so, when you read, when you read the New Testament in the Greek language, it's like reading other documents in the first century, um, in most respects. But occasionally they'll deviate a little bit when they want to make some sort of special point. And this is one of those times. And I want to read you something from a uh, from a, a scholar, a Greek scholar. That I don't want to get too much in the weeds here but there's an important point that I want you to get and it has to do with a particular way that usually, especially in John's Gospel, he says believe in Christ. Some of you I know, and it, it doesn't matter if you don't remember this at all, you don't have to know a, a, a lick of Greek, you know, but there's this Greek preposition ace. That's pretty important in the New Testament. It It's pretty important because ace is a preposition that, it's E-I-S, is how it would be transliterated, but it's used, for example, this is probably where you've heard it, if you've heard it, in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for ace, the forgiveness of sins. That's important there, because that, that preposition ace is a preposition that looks ahead. It's an it's a forward-looking thing. It's like sometimes it's translated unto or for, but it, but it has this uh, this focus on you repent and are baptized in order to receive, you know, forgiveness of sin. So it's that it's that idea. So it means into or unto or for, but it always it always looks ahead. It's a, it's a powerful thing. Thing I want you to see here is that outside of the New Testament, you don't you don't read of this particular construction of Believe, ace. You don't. You don't see the preposition ace following this, but the New Testament thirty-seven times, it's used like this. You don't see it in classical Greek. You don't see it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. You don't see it in other places, but you see it in the New Testament. And and so let me read you this um, because it's, it's pretty cool. Um, he says this belief with this preposition never occurs in classical Greek or in the Septuagint, but in the writings of John, the Greek verb believe with this preposition occurs frequently, 37 times, more than any other combination. Here, listen to this. He says, indicating the need to utilize a new linguistic construct to express a deeper realization. In other words, John felt like he needed to expressed this in some sort of emphatic way that wasn't used in the world. That he needed to, this idea of believing in Christ was such a powerful idea that he's joining words that you don't see outside the New Testament. He goes on to say this, this particular use indicates something more than just mental assent. It is a believing that results in a mystical union with the object of belief. Remember that preposition It grabs what's in front of it. It it moves into what's ahead of it. He goes on and he says, It has its full semantic force as a preposition indicating motion toward and into the object of the preposition. Faith, for John, is an activity which takes people right out of themselves and makes them one with Christ. What he's saying, it seems to me, 37 times uses this kind of unique way of putting it, that he's saying this faith thing, this belief is something that is so focused on the object that it, it, it connotes this idea of embracing, of moving into the object. In fact, in other places, it suggests that not only are we moving into Christ, but Christ is moving into us. There's this union that's implied by faith. Now here's another thing, and we'll talk more about this in the next three weeks as we talk about repentance, confession, and baptism. That in the Bible, this idea of belief, it doesn't just include, as I've already said, it doesn't just include mentally agreeing with certain things, but rather it is this all-inclusive, this all-inclusive response of a human being who is so overwhelmed with who Jesus is. We are believing and trusting and moving into Him. We display that as we are baptized into Christ. So we believe, repent, confess, we're baptized into Christ. It's like all one moment of moving into Christ. Belief into, we repent unto, we confess unto, we're baptized into Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And so there are so many implications of faith. So let me, let me close with this. Back to our original thing. Serge, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. If we let the New Testament teach what that means, it's this all-inclusive idea of you believe, you trust, you submit, you give your heart to Him. You say, Lord, I want to identify with you. I want to follow you wherever you go. And that means, of course, as we see in the life of Jesus, we follow him into the waters of baptism. Jesus was baptized to show us what obedience looks like, and we're baptized into Christ. You can do that this morning. Perhaps you are someone here, someone who's not yet identified in that way with Jesus. We invite you to come today to be baptized into him. Uh, Or maybe you need to ask for prayers of the church. We'll pray with you as well today. Need to respond. I hope you'll come. Let's stand. Let's sing this song for your encouragement.